Part 6, Section 6 of The Rescue by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 6, Section 6. Thirty-six hours later, Carter, alone with Lingard in the cabin of the brig, could almost feel, during a pause in his talk, the oppressive, the breathless peace of the shallows awaiting another sunset. I never expected to see any of you alive, Carter began in his easy tone, but with much less carelessness in his bearing, as though his days of responsibility amongst the shoals of the shore of refuge had matured his view of the external world and of his own place therein. Of course not, muttered Lingard. The listlessness of that man, whom he had always seen acting under the stress of a secret passion, seemed perfectly appalling to Carter's youthful and deliberate energy. Ever since he had found himself again face to face with Lingard, he had tried to conceal the shocking impression with a delicacy which owed nothing to training, but was as intuitive as a child's. While justifying to Lingard his manner of dealing with the situation on the shore of refuge, he could not for the life of him help asking himself what was this new mystery. He was also young enough to long for a word of commendation. Come, Captain, he argued, how would you have liked to come out and find nothing but two half-burnt wrecks stuck on the sands, perhaps? He waited for a moment, then in sheer compassion turned away his eyes from that fixed gaze, from that harassed face with sunk cheeks from that figure of indomitable strength robbed of its fire. He said to himself, He doesn't hear me, and raised his voice without altering its self-contained tone. I was below yesterday morning when we felt the shock, but the noise came to us only as a deep rumble. I made one jump at the companion, but that precious shore was before me yelling, Earthquake! Earthquake! And I'm hanged if he didn't miss his footing and land down on his head at the bottom of the stairs. I had to stop to pick him up, but I got on deck in time to see a mighty black cloud that seemed almost solid pop up from behind the forest like a balloon. It stayed there for quite a long time. Some of our calashes on deck swore to me that they had seen a red flash above the treetops, but that's hard to believe. I guessed at once that something had blown up on shore. My first thought was that I would never see you any more, and I made up my mind at once to find out all the truth you've been keeping away from me. No, sir, don't you make a mistake. I wasn't going to give you up, dead or alive. He looked hard at Lingard while saying these words, and saw the first sign of animation pass over that ravaged face. He saw even its lips move slightly, but there was no sound, and Carter looked away again. Perhaps you would have done better by telling me everything, but you left me behind on my own to be your man here. I put my hand to work, I could see before me, I'm a sailor, there were two ships to look after, and here they are, both for you, fit to go or to stay, to fight or to run as you choose. He watched with bated breath the effort Lingard had to make to utter the two words of the desired commendation. Well done. And I am your man still, Carter added impulsively, and hastened to look away from Lingard, who had tried to smile at him and had failed. Carter didn't know what to do next, remain in the cabin or leave that unsupported strong man to himself. 
with a shyness completely foreign to his character and which he could not understand himself, he suggested in an engaging murmur and with an embarrassed assumption of his right to give advice, Why not lie down for a bit, sir? I can attend to anything that may turn up. You seem done up, sir. He was facing Lingard, who stood on the other side of the table in a leaning forward attitude, propped up on rigid arms, and stared fixedly at him, perhaps. Carter felt on the verge of despair. This couldn't last. He was relieved to see Lingard shake his head slightly. No, Mr Carter, I think I will go on deck, said the captain of the famous brig Lightning, while his eyes roamed all over the cabin. Carter stood aside at once, but it was some little time before Lingard made a move. The sun had sunk already, leaving that evening no trace of its glory on a sky clear as crystal and on the waters without a ripple. All colour seemed to have gone out of the world. The oncoming shadow rose as subtle as a perfume from the black coast lying athwart the eastern semicircle, and such was the silence within the horizon that one might have fancied oneself come to the end of time. Black and toy-like in the clear depths and the final stillness of the evening, the brig and the schooner lay anchored in the middle of the main channel with their heads swung the same way. Lingard, with his chin on his breast and his arms folded, moved slowly here and there about the poop. Close and mute like his shadow, Carter, at his elbow, followed his movements. He felt an anxious solicitude. It was a sentiment perfectly new to him. He had never before felt this sort of solicitude about himself or any other man. His personality was being developed by new experience, and as he was very simple, he received the initiation with shyness and self-mistrust. He had noticed with innocent alarm that Lingard had not looked either at the sky or over the sea, neither at his own ship nor the schooner astern, not along the decks, not aloft, not anywhere. He had looked at nothing. And somehow Carter felt himself more lonely and without support than when he had been left alone by that man in charge of two ships, entangled amongst the shallows and environed by some sinister mystery. Since that man had come back, instead of welcome relief, Carter felt his responsibility rest on his young shoulders with tenfold weight. His profound conviction was that Lingard should be roused. "'Captain Lingard!' he burst out in desperation. You can't say I have worried you very much since this morning when I received you at the side, but I must be told something. What is it going to be with us? Fight or run? Lingard stopped short, and now there was no doubt in Carter's mind that the captain was looking at him. There was no room for any doubt before that stern and inquiring gaze. Ah, thought Carter, this has startled him. And feeling that his shyness had departed, he pursued his advantage. For the fact of the matter is, sir, that whatever happens, unless I am to be your man, you will have no officer. I had better tell you at once that I have bundled that respectable, crazy, fat Shaw out of the ship. He was upsetting all hands. Yesterday I told him to go and get his dunnage together because I was going to send him aboard the yacht. He couldn't have made more uproar about it if I had proposed to chuck him overboard. I warned him that if he didn't go quietly, I'd have him tied up like a sheep, ready for slaughter. However, he went down the ladder on his own feet, shaking his fist at me and promising to have me hanged for a pirate some day. He can do no harm on board the yacht. 
and now, sir, it's for you to give orders and not for me, thank God. Lingard turned away abruptly. Carter didn't budge. After a moment he heard himself called from the other side of the deck and obeyed with alacrity. "'What's that story of a man you picked up on the coast last evening?' asked Lingard in his gentlest tone. "'Didn't you tell me something about it when I came on board?' "'I tried to,' said Carter frankly, "'but I soon gave it up. "'You didn't seem to pay any attention to what I was saying. "'I thought you wanted to be left alone for a bit.' "'What can I know of your ways yet, sir? "'Are you aware, Captain Lingard, "'that since this morning I've been down five times "'at the cabin door to look at you? "'There you sat.' "'He paused, and Lingard said, "'You've been five times down in the cabin?' "'Yes, and the sixth time I made up my mind "'to make you take some notice of me. "'I can't be left without orders. "'There are two ships to look after, "'a lot of things to be done. "'There's nothing to be done,' "'Lingard interrupted with a mere murmur.' but in a tone which made Carter keep silent for a while. Even to know that much would have been something to go by, he ventured at last. I couldn't let you sit there with the sun getting pretty low and a long night before us. I feel stunned yet, said Lingard, looking Carter straight in the face, as if to watch the effect of that confession. Were you very near that explosion, asked the young man with sympathetic curiosity and seeking for some sign on Lingard's person? But there was nothing. Not a single hair of the captain's head seemed to have been singed. Near, muttered Lingard. It might have been my head. He pressed it with both hands and let them fall. What about that man? he asked brusquely. Where did he come from? I suppose he is dead now, he added in an envious tone. No, sir. He must have as many lives as a cat, answered Carter. I will tell you how it was. As I said before, I wasn't going to give you up, dead or alive, so yesterday, when the sun went down a little in the afternoon, I had two of our boats manned and pulled in shore, taking soundings to find a passage if there was one. I meant to go back and look for you, with the brig or without the brig, but that doesn't matter now. There were three or four floating logs in sight. One of the calashes in my boat made out something red on one of them. I thought it was worthwhile to go and see what it was. It was that man so wrong that had got entangled among the branches and prevented him rolling off into the water. I was never so glad, I assure you, as when we found out that he was still breathing. If we could only nurse him back to life, I thought he could perhaps tell me a lot of things. The log on which he hung had come out of the mouth of the creek, and he couldn't have been more than half a day on it, by my calculation. I had him taken down the main hatchway and put into a hammock in the tween decks. He only just breathed then, but sometime during the night he came to himself and got out of the hammock to lie down on a mat. I suppose he was more comfortable that way. He recovered his speech only this morning, and I went down at once and told you of it, but you took no notice. I told you also who he was, but I don't know whether you heard me or not. I don't remember, said Lingard under his breath. They are wonderful, those Malays. This morning he was only half alive, if that much, and now I understand he's been talking to Wasab for an hour. Will you go down and see him, sir, or shall I send a couple of men to carry him on deck? Lingard looked bewildered for a moment. Who on earth is he? he asked. Why, it's that fellow whom you sent out that night I met you to catch our first gig. What do they call him? Jafir, I think. Hasn't he been with you ashore, sir? Didn't he find you with the letter I gave him for you? A most determined-looking chap. I knew him again the moment we got him off the log. 
Lingard seized hold of the royal backstay within reach of his hand. Jaffir, Jaffir, faithful above all others, the messenger of supreme moments, the reckless and devoted servant. Lingard felt a crushing sense of despair. No, I can't face this, he whispered to himself, looking at the coast black as ink now before his eyes in the world's shadow that was slowly encompassing the grey clearness of the shallow waters. Send Wasab to me. I am going down into the cabin. He crossed over to the companion, then checking himself suddenly. Was there a boat from the yacht during the day? he asked, as if struck by a sudden thought. No, sir, answered Carter. We had no communication with the yacht today. Send Wasab to me, repeated Lingard in a stern voice as he went down the stairs. The old serang, coming in noiselessly, saw his captain as he had seen him many times before, sitting under the gilt thunderbolts, apparently as strong in his body, in his wealth, and in his knowledge of secret words that have power over men and elements as ever. The old Malay squatted down within a couple of feet from Lingard, leant his back against the satin wood panel of the bulkhead, then raising his old eyes with a watchful and benevolent expression to the white man's face, clasped his hands between his knees. What's up? You've learnt now everything. Is there no one left alive but Jafir? Are they all dead? May you live, answered Wasab, and Lingard whispered an appalled, all dead, to which Wasab nodded slightly twice. His cracked voice had a lamenting intonation. It is all true. It is all true. You are left alone, Tuan. You are left alone. It was their destiny, said Lingard at last with a forced calmness. But as Jaffir told you of the manner of this calamity, how is it that he alone came out alive from it to be found by you? He was told by his lord to depart, and he obeyed, began Wasab, fixing his eyes on the deck and speaking just loud enough to be heard by Lingard, who, bending forward in his seat, shrank inwardly from every word, and yet would not have missed a single one of them for anything. For the catastrophe had fallen on his head like a bolt from the blue in the early morning hours of the day before. At the first break of dawn he had been sent for to resume his talk with Bellarab. He had felt suddenly Mrs. Travers remove her hand from his head, her voice speaking intimately into his ear. Get up, there are some people coming, had recalled him to himself. He had got up from the ground. The light was dim, the air full of mist, and it was only gradually that he began to make out forms above his head and about his feet, trees, houses, men sleeping on the ground. He didn't recognise them. It was but a cruel change of dream. Who could tell what was real in this world? He looked about him dazedly. He was still drunk with the deep draught of oblivion he had conquered for himself. Yes, but it was she who had let him snatch the cup. He looked down at the woman on the bench. She moved not. She had remained like that, still for hours, giving him a waking dream of rest without end, in an infinity of happiness without sound and movement, without thought, without joy, but with an infinite ease of content, like a world-embracing reverie, breathing the air of sadness and scented with love. For hours she had not moved. 
You are the most generous of women, he said. He bent over her. Her eyes were wide open. Her lips felt cold. It did not shock him. After he stood up, he remained near her. Heat is a consuming thing, but she, with her cold lips, seemed to him indestructible and perhaps immortal. Again he stooped, but this time it was only to kiss the fringe of her headscarf. Then he turned away to meet the three men who, coming round the corner of the hut containing the prisoners, were approaching him with measured steps. They desired his presence in the council room. Ballarab was awake. They also expressed their satisfaction at finding the white man awake, because Ballarab wanted to impart to him information of the greatest importance. It seemed to Lingard that he had been awake ever since he could remember. It was as to being alive that he felt not so sure. He had no doubt of his existence, but was this life, this profound indifference, this strange contempt for what his eyes could see, this distaste for words, this unbelief in the importance of things and men? He tried to regain possession of himself, his old self, which had things to do, words to speak as well as to hear, but it was too difficult. He was seduced away by the tense feeling of existence far superior to the mere consciousness of life, and which, in its immensity of contradictions, delight, dread, exaltation and despair, could not be faced and yet was not to be evaded. There was no peace in it. But who wanted peace? Surrender was better. The dreadful ease of slack limbs in the sweep of an enormous tide and in a divine emptiness of mind. If this was existence, then he knew that he existed. And he knew that the woman existed too in the sweep of the tide, without speech, without movement, without heat, indestructible and perhaps immortal. End of part six, section six.